Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pope Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry. Our producer, Dan Fedbunker, is lost somewhere in the wilds of other Zoom meetings. Um, Justin. He's probably enjoying the cabin still. Oh, like that's right. I hope that is where he is. Social distancing by being in the woods. We went uh, mushroom picking, my family and I, out into the woods looking for morales. Um, not a bad, we didn't have like, I wouldn't say a good haul for those of you who know anything about mushroom picking, but, uh, it was really wild to be out in the woods again. felt nice. And to each one you find is like a treasure. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you know anything about fancy cooking, uh, every pound of it is literally worth like a treasure also, but we just eat them ourselves. Um, special announcement to the dear listener. Um, this is my grandmother's wisdom. If you're not 110% sure of the mushroom that you are picking, you should not eat it. If you even have a tiny doubt, even if you're like, I'm pretty sure, I'm sure. The moment you hesitate, you do not eat it until an expert has proven that it's the right one. Um, there are... Or is there untimely deaths or acid trips or? Um, well, not on our side. No, because we have adhered strictly to this rule. But um, uh, my grandmother told the story of, and I don't, this is like a, I'm sure an apocryphal story, but of just an entire family that ate the wrong mushroom and then they were no more. Oh God. Yeah. So <laughs> um, you don't mess with the uh, mycelium network. You got to know what you're up to. Right. So this is something that I've done since I was 10 years old. So I've got a handle on it. And also morales, you can't get wrong. Um, <laughs> speaking of looking for treasure in like uh, hard to find places, I've started to organize my time a little bit better. Uh, I also would like to make a, a point of thanking the half a dozen or a dozen people who reached out through various media uh on my twitter on my instagram on my facebook uh and literally at my front door to say they listen to our podcast about how hard things have been getting work done and like arrive to like give condolences or like send messages saying like oh yeah it sucks for me too um so i really appreciated hearing everybody and hearing from people who are who are just talking about how uh derailed their lives have been too um you know so that was really great. Now, uh, a further derailment has, of course, occurred uh, worldwide. The Black Lives Matter movement has uh, put dozens of cities on fire. And uh, maybe at long last, we'll get the change that we have so badly needed in, uh, uh, in the world. One of the biggest breaks I got in comics uh, came from a man uh, at Z2 Comics, Sridhar, who would routinely have to budget his time for travel around how often he would get detained simply for being brown skinned. Oh, he would work it into his travel itineraries and they kind of made light of it. Uh, him and Josh at C2 would kind of make light of it that they would always plan an extra day for him, but it wasn't a light thing. So um, my heart goes out to all those people who are literally in the streets trying to push things back to the way they should be. So it's yeah, pretty nuts down there. Um, we've had our share in, uh, you know, 
uh, Vancouver and Toronto also has there been a few peaceful protests. Um, Winnipeg, I know, is organizing one. Um, so if you're listening and you're out there, um, I'm sure you have more things to worry about than our stupid comics podcast. But uh, uh, our thoughts are with you guys on those front lines. So wild world. All we can do is fight yeah. with the tools that we've got. And what we've got as tools is making books. You've been sending such great art. So dear listener, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that um, Justin has started uh, many difficult discussions in our family dynamic by sending color schematics and versions of different cute dragons for my kids to weigh in on. Um, and for all my design theory and high-minded ideas about what colors work best, um, you know, a kid just leads with their heart and tells you what works and what doesn't. And it's been pretty amazing that none of us could agree at any time in the entire house ever on which our top three or four were of the stuff Justin was saying. So it's been really fun to watch that reaction uh, with the whole thing. It has been, um, normally when you send people too many options, like I, the first couple um, concepts that I sent you guys, I sent too many options. And I probably shouldn't have done that, but I was excited and I wanted to like show all the work I'd done. But I sent like, I think 14 color options, which is something you shouldn't do. You should give people like maximum six. And even that is sometimes can overwhelm. Um, but of all the people I sent to, there was some consistency, which I was super shocked about. Interesting. Normally, it's all over the place, but I was I was shocked at how consistent things were, where the yeah the reactions were. So um, we've narrowed it down, and I've yeah chosen the the final color scheme of the the other main character in the book, and I've started building pages. Yeah. Uh, and you sent pictures. Um, and dear listener, this is maybe a good, uh, you know, despite everything else going on in the world, uh, making art yeah, can, you know, literally save your life. So uh, we're just going to focus on what we do best here and talk about that mostly. Leave world events out of it. Um, but I, I'll also say that in context is when the image is really solidified for me. So you, So Justin sent us... A whole bunch of just uh, you know illustrations of dragons with all different versions of color variations. He has these sort of barbels or like um, fronds on his head that are one color, and then the body is another color. And against a white background, you would pick your favorites. I found I picked my favorites differently than what you did today, which was send the character in relation to the other character, the main character, set in a common background. That's yeah. when I realized the error of some of my previous comic or coloring choices. I uh, uh, and which ones really pop related to the background became very different than what just works as a character sort of emotive. Yeah, it's kind of um, it's like with a logo, right? Like when you're looking at a logo on a white background, that's all fine and dandy, but how often is that logo actually going to be on a white background when its intention is to be? you know, slapped on top of imagery or like photos. Right. So if you have a really colorful logo on top of colorful images, that's not going to work all the time. And sometimes it'll actually disappear. Like it needs to, 
needs to work in its intended setting. Yeah, so it was really eye-opening in a way. You know, and it's funny because I sort of, I know that about myself when I'm working on designs or character designs or like for the World War Weird stuff, you know, everyone's got a colorful costume, more or less. Um, and so I'm pitting those color choices against what I know is going to be a war-torn, brown, gray, uh, tan, you know, like just the distritus of a blown up city. Um, mm -hmm. So they kind of pop on purpose ahead of that. So I don't have to worry about, or I guess I'm, when I'm designing those things, I know that they're going to be against a drab background and they're intended to pop out and be easy to recognize as what they are. But things from nature, and in a way, you know, as much as our story is a fantasy story, that little creature looks like he fits exactly into the world as a living representation of that sort of space that you made. There are different considerations when you're trying to make something look like it's a part of a natural world for the color schemes, I think, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's been, uh, it was a really nerve wracking part of the, the journey because we've, we've had an idea of what this character looked like since like almost the get go. Like Joanna was designed a long time ago, but like I've been 30 pages into this book and she hasn't, there's no final artwork for her yet. So I was really nervous about like the first couple of attempts at this other main character who hasn't made an appearance yet. Yeah, so hard. It has to be perfect. All right, Murph, give me a second. Uh-huh. Third. You didn't tell us what your favorites were. So I'm curious to know, um, I mean, it's always good not to, when you're sharing for people's opinions, you don't lead with it by telling them what your opinion is first. Um, but now that we've all shared, what's your favorite? What's yours? It was uh, the like the the piece I sent you that was like the the final five. Yeah, I put my favorite in the middle. In the middle, it was blue with the yellow tummy. Yeah, he's good. He is good. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Also, I'm keeping in mind too that um, this character ages as the book goes on. Oh yeah. It's. Joanna, she's almost colored like a tropical fish, right? It's awfully bright colors, kind of that um, nature colored her that way because she's dangerous kind of look. You know, like if it, this was a frog or a reptile that you found on the on the ground, you wouldn't touch it. <laughs> now, I just thought of something. If we're considering our context here, not just within the world of that book, but within the world of the other books that fit around it, um, one of the things we could do to maintain consistency, those like barbels that kind of glow or have the luminescence, we could make sure that they glow the same blue as Tonk. That was kind of the plan. The first time they glow is when she senses her first egg later in the book. Right. And then we They're could... kind of like dormant right now. Yeah. And we could then maintain a really... Uh, solid color consistency for that glow being protection... Right. And then then even our constant reader will know will get a little bit of foreshadowing. They'll know to trust her even if she's up to no good in some of those pages. Right. Yeah. Or they'll be predisposed to trust her, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Good robots glow blue. Yes. In our uh, in our universe right now, till we change the rules on everybody. Mid season, yeah. mid season twist. Um, I was just 
Speaking of uh, rules, I was just talking to a grade eight class, a rural grade eight class in rural Manitoba. Um, Andreas Sardison, who uh, arranged, who was the director of Red Earth, the play that I was involved in, is um, uh, using many of her contacts to connect creatives to um, schools and uh, groups that are having trouble with enrichment content because of the social distancing and reached out and said, would you be willing to teach comics to a grade eight class? Um, you know, do four or five lessons, like one hour lessons and just uh, sort of get parachuted into a digital classroom. Could you figure out how that would work? So I did my second one today. And, you know, we were talking about this a little before the podcast. One of the things I've realized as a teacher is that I've come to rely so heavily on the things people don't say in a classroom environment, on their body language, on the micro expressions, on the way they lean back away from their page, the way they're, you know, they look to their phone instead of what you're saying, like to gauge where you need to uh, add the sizzle, right? Or add the steak. And really tricky to do in remote teaching. You know, like one of the things that I would often find as a teacher in the classroom environment is that the extroverts always speak up and the introverts have just as much to say, but forcing them to speak up is kind of doing them a disservice in a lot of ways. If you haven't earned their trust, like I'm new to the room, obviously, in an example like this. And so one thing that you can do in a room is you can go over to that introvert, kneel down with them, see the work they're doing, and then ask if they mind, you know, I would say like, do you mind if I use your work as the example? You don't have to speak about it. It's a great example. I'm gonna speak about how great an example it is. And then they get to be part of the entire conversation without having to be the center of attention. Their work becomes the center rather than them. And that can be a really great tool as a teacher. Um, I felt like handcuffed by that. I could tell uh, through this uh, online learning space that we were using that there were people who had a lot to say but didn't know how to speak up, were a little nervous about speaking up um, because, you know, it was a, it's a good system. The kids can put their hand up and I can see it visually when a hand goes up. It's a little icon that comes up. And then they can ask a question and the camera switches to their perspective and I can see them directly. So that works great. But if you're a bit of an introvert, having a camera literally on your face as the way yeah. that you interact, no, that's like, that's not a safe learning environment. I think too, environment has a lot to do with it. Like I was thinking about this the, uh, the other day, like the, um, the boxing gym is closed down for everything that's going on. So I was able to, uh, because I'm a member of the gym, rent one of the bags to, to put up in the studio. So I have a punching bag and I have like all the equipment that I would normally have for the class. And you can do online classes where the trainers, you know, go through everything online. But it's like not even half the motivation as being in that classroom environment with all those people around you. You're in that setting. You're in that mindset. It's so hard to recreate that you know, kind of at home. Yeah, totally. And and also the, the urgency that is created by other people's presence, like just being in a room with someone else who you look up from, you're, you're distracted minorly, you look up and you see that other person is at work or on task yeah. and you immediately yeah. then 
carry through with what you were doing. Oh, this is not the time to have a break. Uh, definitely been missing out on that. One of the things I did recently, I'm working on a comics project with uh, Dr. Jonathan Ball called The Eye Collector. Um, if I'm not supposed to have mentioned that, um, Jonathan, please get in touch. I'm sorry. Um, is that uh, the images that you sent me as well? Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. Really, really wild, really creepy. It's like a horror dream monster. Um, it reminded me of something from Hellraiser. Something woke up. Ooh, nice. Yeah, perfect. That's the right vibe. Um, good, good. But normally I was having him ping me sort of like when, when the world was sort of running like it should, he would sort of get in touch once a month related to that project. And I would just send him an update and that was great. I was getting lots done. That was the perfect time to do it. Uh, as we got busier once a week, as we get closer to the deadline, once a week is a sort of a better way to do it. Our last conversation, I told him, you know, it's actually better for me in the absence of any structure right now in my life uh, for you to get in touch every couple of days. And he said like, that seems like harassment. I'm like, no, what it does is it helps me create the space where I'm at. Because if I get two or three messages from him a week, I get those messages while I'm homeschooling, while I'm having other conversations with my wife, while I'm at life. And I'm able to say, oh, I have this work I have to do for someone else. It's the work that's leading me away or it's the work that is necessary it's not a choice I'm making not to spend time with you, my son. It's not a choice I, I want to make not to spend time with you, my wife, in this very stressful, difficult situation that we're all living in. Uh, it's a necessity based on my relationship with people who are outside of this room. And just like even even over the last like four days that he's gotten in touch with me twice. And it's exactly that scenario where I'm with the group and the ping my phone things. Oh, who's that? Oh, it's J-Ball reminding me I have work that I have to get to him. Um, has been really good for the structure, helping like hammer out what works and what doesn't. Just reminding people that like, don't interrupt. I only have a couple hours. Please don't interrupt them. You know I'm doing this for this other person, right? And we uh -huh. have to get this done. That's been uh, uh, sort of a discovery over recent uh, recent time that... I'll report back whether or not it really works. But uh, uh, if I had five or 10, if everyone was doing that, it would be too much. But just a couple of people who are already sort of in the inner circle is is like the right amount of nudging, right? Right. Um, and then it's funny because he actually knows better. His first instinct was like, I don't want to do that. I, that would drive me crazy. And I was like, well, it'll help what I'm doing. So just every time you think about how you want to see a page, ping me about it. What's going on, Murph? The other project that I'm not, uh, you know, it's not near launch or anything like that, but it's we're deep into it is uh, Arena City. And yeah. finally starting to take a shape that feels like a book, um, but knowing that it will be months and months before anybody sees it has been hard. Um, yeah. But my uh, sort of handler, my editor, she's like an editor, but also a project manager. She doesn't do, she doesn't do substantive edits. She's more of a project manager because there's so many technical uh, levels involved in what we're doing for the app that we're doing the work for. Uh, she just checks in to make sure that, you know, 
are these layers in this Dropbox? Are these things labeled correctly? She pings very nicely once a week to say like, hey, great job, that stuff's where it's supposed to be, thanks. And even that little bit of like, it's silly, but a, a little bit of positive reinforcement goes such a long way when you're trying to deal with all the other things. So I've had a much improved stretch um, over the last couple of weeks just by telling other people I need the structure of their interruptions um, mm -hmm. has been a, a thing I would never. When you and I are in the studio, the idea of telling people interrupt me more, n no way. Right? No. I, like we get enough interruptions in the world normally, and I would fight to make to be the hard to reach guy because I have right. so much to do. Now trying to like remind people like to do the opposite, it's when weird. So I'm worried now that I'm saying this all out loud because when the world turns back on, I'm gonna expect a different availability from you know. Yeah. It's such a balancing act, right? Like a at certain points, all you want to do is self-isolate and work. But if you get too much of that, you burn out on self-isolating and working too much as well. Like it's you gotta you gotta have a little bit of both. It seems like we have a lot of time to get all these projects done, but before we know it, it's it's we're not gonna have enough time to. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. It's like pretty soon summer break will be over going coming along really nicely but i know they're gonna be it's they're gonna feel rushed once this once the world comes back to normal no matter no matter what and it requires a certain amount of for me anyway a, a compartmentalization because like you know the reason we have this time is because you know uh, three hundred thousand people died right uh, or it's that worldwide. Yeah. Oh God. Right. That's pretty. Yeah. So compartments and, and, you know, you're in a slightly different situation because the people around you are adults who, when they read the news, they talk to you about what the news means, uh, to them. When you have kids at home, you have to talk to them about what the news means and then what it means to you. And then what it means to them in a way that isn't, terrifying to them um you know it's like uh you know you and i both love the film interstellar there's that bit where he says where where um uh, anna hathaway's character is like why didn't you just tell her you were going to save the world right and he says no when you're a parent you want your kids to feel safe you can't tell them that the world is at risk and that's why you're doing something right now. Nothing you and I are doing is that life threatening or that, you know, we're not bravely risking anything right now. Um, but so many people around us are. And so you have to compartmentalize that. And that's been also a hard part is like you do have all this time to get things done. Uh, but feeling like they matter can be a challenge. You know, and I don't know if you know, you remember this, but you said to me in our last conversation, like, I'm going to turn the news off for a bit just so that I can focus on making this book feel happy. <laughs> right. Those are your words. And I was like, it was so, so poignant because that's it. Exactly. Right. So um, one of the things I was telling the students today is that there's a difference between stories that are for entertainment and stories that have meaning. 
and that you can uh-huh. you can make a story and be entertained and then decide what it means after. And so some of what I'm trying to do now is do that. You know? Um, and like, you know, our little story, believe it or not, your, your little dragon nanny is completely self-isolated on that world. There's no more of her kind. Don't, don't attach meaning to it right now. Though. Yeah. <laughs> You're not ready. When you tell a good story, that, that meaning and like what did the writer and like artist really mean, all that junk can be figured out later. We'll figure it out later. Yeah, it's true. We'll get yeah. the image. Well, and that's okay. That's one of the powers that comics have also maybe beyond other media. Um, and I was, you know, one of the examples that I'm using for this class is this little comic I'm working on, uh, just sort of fun on the side, uh, called moon patrol It's like giant robots on the moon fighting monsters, basically. Um, and I was just explaining that like these images of like this big robot smashing into a dragon and fighting it with this big neutron sword. Those are just fun for me to draw. Yeah. And that it's okay if that's all I got out of it. Like there doesn't have to be a profound meaning beside giant robot, monster, neutron sword. But that once you have all the pieces, you can assemble them in such a way that has a greater meaning if you want to. Right? And trying Mm -hmm. to get them, you know, they're grade eight kids. So basically they have all the power and all the energy that you need to change the world and just none of the experience yet. And trying to remind them that, you know, the experience of just making things can be enough. So, so reminding, and you know, it's funny because you say it out loud to a group of grade eights and you suddenly realize that you're the one that needed to hear it. (laughs) You needed that. Yeah. I need to be reminded of that. Um, It was tricky though. Normally I turn my, uh, turn my notifications off when I'm, you know, live streaming to a classroom um so it's not ping 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 um and i try to remember to do it on our podcast too but i sometimes forget as i did today and i got some pretty bad news from people abroad who are you know that i keep in touch with who are involved in the protest and so it was like this moment where as a teacher do i ignore how upset i am about what i've learned or do i just come clean with the classroom and i couldn't help myself i was just like yeah bring it into the classroom right which again when it's your own classroom dear listener if you're a teacher it's good pedagogy to bring the world inside when it's your classroom you've built trust i felt however that that was maybe the wrong pivot for me (laughs) as the visitor i was already from the outside it's the teacher's job who and it was clear from the responses that the kids gave me that that teacher is doing a good job doing that stuff. So it was like this weird part of me that's used to just pivoting into the regular world as a teacher of my own classroom and remembering that my role as the visitor is different. I had to kind of check myself at a certain point. I mean, I didn't like spin off into some giant diatribe. I just, you know, addressed real things that were going on and maybe it was five minutes total of class time, but the kind of thing that you wouldn't expect a visitor to uh, burden a grade eight classroom with, I think maybe. And so I reached out to the teacher like through text right away. I was like, you know, I'm 
put the kids on task and is like, sorry, if that was way offside. And, uh, you know, she was amazing. And she was like, no, that is the real world. That's what kids need to see. So, uh, you know, all that stuff. I always appreciate it when high school teachers would kind of break from the lesson plan to talk about, you know, world events. It didn't, you know, it didn't happen too, too often, but when it did, yeah, I remember appreciating it. Right. And that's, you know, that's what art is made of, is the real world. Murph got into a fistfight with several of her classmates over this Apollo nonsense. I've been doing some storyboarding, skill building stuff, stuff I can do little sips. And another thing I've been doing is working on um, building my my physical drawing set, like my, my analog drawing skills. I've been doing um, five minute, 10 minute sort of sprint sketches, um, trying not to draw from reference, uh, though I usually do, uh, trying not to use um, um, too many exterior tools, not because it's not because you shouldn't use those tools. I think you have to use those tools as a professional artist, but because it's been a long time since I have had to rely totally on just my piece of paper and a pencil to get a complete idea across with no support whatsoever from anything else that that's been a really, um, and I hadn't realized that I've actually been doing it sort of from the beginning. So it's 10, we're into, I guess, week 11 or 12 of isolation. Uh, I've been drawing a lot that way. And then I've been leaning into it and just trying to really like perfect some illustration without help. And it's actually, I've, it sounds funny, but I've seen a real improvement in my ability to draw over those 10 weeks. So do you think, is it improvement or are you just getting back to form? Those skills had just gotten rusty and you're just kind of getting back into the groove. Because I always wonder when I take a bit of a break from traditional illustration and then come back in a big way, did I get better in the last couple of weeks or did I just get back to where I was? Yeah, interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's, in my case, it's a little from column A, a little from column B. There's definitely some stuff that was just rusty. And then some other yeah. things that I'd gotten used to just not bothering to learn because I was going to only be doing comics, say. Yeah. Or um, I have a trick digitally that gets me away from having to think hard about this. I imagine you never put as much weight into it because you always know well, your real process takes place on the computer. That's right. So like, why would I spend 100% of my effort on this traditional because I'm going to bring it in and do the rest of it digitally. Yeah. You know, and, and like for the dear listener who wants a concrete example, I can give you one. Uh, if I'm going to draw a giant, like, you know, ugly monster who has long taloned fingers, let's say, uh, digitally, I can make one long taloned finger and then I can multiply that finger four times. And now I have the basis for the other fingers on that hand uh yeah. the shape language will match uh yes you have to adjust them you have to you know warp them change them reline them you know all that kind of stuff but the amount of time it takes is like 30 percent of what it would be to draw it from scratch right because you're yeah. using what you already did and, and when you're drawing digitally you have this capacity dear listener to just constantly add to the toolbox of things you already made like a texture that you really like. So then you use that, whatever. So I found myself drawing these, like, uh, I was just doing some reptiles. I wanted to do some stuff that's ultimately a uh, scary, like lizard man. And I'm drawing the outlines 
And in my brain, I'm like, oh, well, I'll just use this texture from this texture that I already built for this other thing. I, did, I made a good dragon scale once before. I'll reuse that here. That's what my brain is saying. But I'm not working on the computer. I'm working on the sketchbook. So instead, I have to remember, I'm literally opening that file in my mind, seeing what that texture I'd already drawn is, and then trying to recreate it now just in the sketchbook. No tricks, no tools, except my mind, my memory, my pen, my sketchbook. Yeah. Uh, so my hat, you know, and this, there's a lot of people out there who they draw only analog, pencil, ink. And they are saying like, well, yeah, asshole, that is how you draw, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. But what I'm, you know, I've just developed in a different direction for what I need for how I'm polishing my work uh, than mm -hmm. you do. So um, coming back to the ground floor and learning those essential skills sort of fresh has been something that looking through my sketchbook, because I was feeling, you know, as, as I said in the, in the other episode, like that I just hadn't accomplished anything. And then I looked through, I realized I was looking through, uh, you know, basically 200 pages of sketches that I had been doing that I had told myself didn't matter. They were just like 15, 20 minute sketches. So like that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. Right. But over the course of 10 weeks, it's added up to a, a substantial amount of uh, skill development. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're making me feel a little guilty because I've since the quarantine I've switched up kind of my organizational um, habits. Whereas before I would always have a sketchbook and I would always be making lists and notes and little thumbnails and stuff in my sketchbook. And then when the the quarantine happened, I for whatever reason I started putting everything on post-it notes and I made up this huge kind of like almost like a mood board of like long term, short term, um, like little tasks I need to do, like fun tasks, outdoor tasks, like go for a run and then like, you know, set up your online store and do this. And like, so just like all these random tasks. And I really enjoyed making all these tasks on post-its because when they were done, I got to crumple them up. Yeah. And so I have this like on my desk, I have this huge stein. Oh my goodness, look all, at that. Yeah. Full of all these colorful post-its that are completed tasks. Yeah. It's like a rainbow of accomplishment, dear listener. So really satisfying, but um, it also means my amount of doodling has gone down because because my notes aren't taking place in the sketchbook. But on the other hand, it's been I don't think like ever before my career have I been able to be this single-minded about one project because there are no other, like I still have a little bit of freelance and a bit of other things going on, but the majority of my efforts are going into the Dragon Nanny book right now. It feels different and really like a really unique experience that I'm really happy to be able to explore and just sad that it had to take the world's yeah, getting smacked around for it to yeah. happen. I wonder if the takeaway here for both of us is that, you know, because if you look at that, that's like two months, basically, that that every couple of years, it's worthwhile to build in a couple of months where you've managed to clear other people's expectations away so that you can just work on the craft 
it's how do you do that though? Like we, no, I don't we know. keep telling ourselves every like every year at the end of convention season, we're like, and now we'll have all this time to do all the stuff. But it, well, we kind of do, but a couple of weeks at a time, never a stretch like this. Yeah. Make him stay, Merv. Don't let me leave, Merv. Our studio is on the seventh floor of this awesome building in downtown Winnipeg. Um, it's on the top floor, and it has some really big windows in it which means we get a lot of amazing natural light, but um, it's not air conditioned. Right, this so time of year. Years, we had an older air conditioning unit that are keeping the studio temperate, you know. <laughs> That's temperate. a good word for it, temperate, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. But at the end of last summer, we finally gave the old air conditioner the, the heave-ho because it was, yeah. It was. It did its job. It had been around for a little too long. It was on its last um, gasp. And the plan this year was, after Calgary or Regina, on the way back, we were going to spend some studio funds to get a new air conditioning unit. A big stand-up unit, like a big robot that would just cool yeah, us yeah. down. But because that never happened, and because I'm being so productive from home, I'm thinking for the summer... I'm going to bring my work computer from the studio home. Oh, yeah. And use the studio, um, like go boxing at the studio, but not actually do any, like I haven't been going to the studio oh, wow. to work because I've been so on top of things working from my home studio. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like, so we're in a, you know, we have to address our privileged position. We're paying rent at that studio, which you and I right now can afford. There are a lot of creatives out there who have that other space that they are struggling to figure out how to keep it, what that is, you know. And, you know, even Tara and I had the conversation of what happens to the studio if this is 24 months long, right? Yeah. What, what if it gets really worse? We're seeing trends worldwide that it's getting better, right? Yeah. We're getting better and eventually we're going to be back together and we're going to have fun in the studio. But if it was 24 months long, right? We'd have to have that discussion of like, what is this space that neither of us can occupy for, <laughs> right? Yeah, if we can't I was be together, like September, we'd be kind of like back to like a studio schedule of some kind. I am, I am deeply hoping that that is true. It's feeling like that is true. Um, yeah. Millions of people gathering in the streets to protest inequality is not going to help uh, the COVID situation. It might yeah. help. It might help. It might help civilization. So I think that's a risk worth taking. Going to get your groceries or your Starbucks is not a risk worth going into the street for. I personally don't think. Um, uh, throwing off the shackles of an oppressive racist regime, right? Uh, that's worth risking COVID for. So, you know, you should pick your battles, I guess. Um, I think so. Uh, but yeah, in that regard, like we have that sort of capacity, which we're very lucky to have that it's so far not, a, uh, it's not a stranglehold on us to, to have that extra expense. In fact, to me, it's like the jewel. It's like the place I can't, which can't wait to return to, you know, yeah. it's like Milo thatched leaves Atlantis. Right. And all he ever wants to do is go back in the sequel. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> that's how i feel little milo has left atlantis but it's still out there and i'm gonna make it I'm gonna make it mm. speaking okay this that reminded me so 
Uh, I've been spending more and more time on Kickstarter because I plan on me too. Plan on my first Kickstarter in like a month or two, kind of thing. Um, and so I've been. Yeah, it's been kind of neat seeing the variety on Kickstarter. There are some projects where it's a team of designers and illustrators and and very professional, very professional setups are putting together these big Kickstarter campaigns. All the way down to somebody writes two paragraphs of text and has one picture of like the pin they want to make. Yeah. And you know, like some of those campaigns compete with each other. Yeah, it's wild. It's, yeah. So there was here's one campaign in particular I got kind of like fascinated with because it looked gorgeous. It looked super professional. And the reason for that was some of the illustrators involved were Disney illustrators. Oh, wow. And so I'm like, okay. And then the uh, actually the guy behind it, he's a gentleman from Madrid, and he's a voice actor. So he did like the um, Olaf from Frozen. He is like the Spanish version of Olaf, right? So he's and that was his connection to these Disney illustrators. And so the project looked amazing. It had a very professional setup, um, but then it didn't get funded. And they weren't asking for very much money. And so I was kind of trying to figure out why. Right. And what it came down to, I think, in my opinion, is it was a team of about five or six people. And nobody was really – they came together and created their brand new brand. So they made a new Facebook page and a new Instagram. And this Oh, I see the trap page. here, yeah. Nobody had a following. Like there was no, this brand had no pull. It was like really talented people, but they were coming together for the first time. And why should any of us be following them for this one project? Yeah. Right? Yeah. The lesson takeaway there, I think, is like you and I don't start a good machine push for books, it's a chasing artwork Kickstarter. Because you're the one with that long tail on social media, you don't try to you don't try to say, "Hey, we're all in it together," and so we're making this new thing. You l make a list of your assets, right? And one of the assets is like if you have a strong social media following, let that person be the spokesperson. I've even noticed with uh, like people, there was actually there was a Z2 uh, Kickstarter, and it was but the person came first. It was like this is my project, this is my book in association with Z2, who's going to publish it when it's all done. Yeah, they had found but a publisher, yeah. I am the brand, I am the face of it. So it was really kind of, it was interesting to see that. Like, these incredibly talented people, everything on the Kickstarter looked amazing. But yeah, it uh, flunked. Yeah. Hmm. Wild. Well, and also... Uh, there is, I think, a belief that Kickstarter is like a, like an ATM. Yes. Uh, and that's not it at all. It's like the reverse. It, it only works if you're putting things into it, right? Uh, it's, I don't know. What, what's the reverse of an ATM? An arcade machine, right? You just have to keep feeding it something, right, in order to have that engagement. And if people come, like the Kickstarters I've seen that I thought would work that didn't, uh, one of the things they all had, seemed to have in common is they just expected it to work. Yeah. Right? When I, like, there's a, there's a portion at the bottom of the Kickstarter that says, like, risks, right? Yeah. If we don't get funded, here's what might happen. Yeah. 
And every once in a while, there'll be somebody who under like risks and challenges will just put, there are no risks. If it doesn't happen, I'm just not going to do the project. Right. And that, yeah. Most of the time, that project wasn't funded yet or failed to get funding. Yeah, if you're not risking anything, then yeah. There's that old David Bowie anecdote about how um, uh, you, your new project should feel like you're on your tiptoes in deep water. Mm. Like that, like the wrong step and you would drown. That's how you know you're doing the right thing. Ah. Right? That's how you know you're doing something new. Right? If you're like, well, there's really no risk. It doesn't really matter. Well, why, do, why will people support that? Yeah. Yeah. Dragon Nanny definitely feels like that. A little bit. I think the risk for us uh, with Dragon Nanny, the, the risk that I would, is that it wouldn't reach. See, and this is how I'm thinking about it. My, my one reluctant, not one, I have a few reluctances about Kickstarter, but one of the ones that sort of keeps coming up in my heart is that it won't reach the people who I think need it the most as a book. Um, need to feel that like pure joy of it as a, as a creative artifact. It won't feel that, like who need to go on that journey. They're not the ones who have credit card accounts and Kickstarter profiles. And Those are the people who are usually meeting in person? In person, right? Who, who, are, who are moved by seeing the work, who, who come to us with fan art after, who come to us and say, like, you know, this is our daughter's favorite book, but I don't like reading it because I cry every time, right? <laughs> Those people aren't the Kickstarter audience. And I don't know what the risk, I mean, I don't know how you work that into a Kickstarter platform. Maybe one of the ways is to uh, do some kind of matching tier where, like, um, for every so many of these books that you guys buy on Kickstarter, we're going to donate this many of them to school libraries, to um, community centers, to, you know, like to places where people then who can't afford to be an early provider on the project can still get access to it. Maybe that's a way to do that's it. That's something we talked about before. And I, I think that's definitely something I'd like to do, especially, you know, it's kind of pick your battles here a little bit, but like, for example, rural schools in Manitoba, like I'm from one of those smaller schools and I love the idea of giving back, like let's send like not only, not only Dragon Nanny, but our other graphic novels, we should send, book packs to a bunch of schools within Manitoba as yeah, part of this project. That'd be great. Maybe we could create a tier where like people could sponsor it, you know, because yeah. like if we did it in Manitoba, say, um, yeah. we know we would have a really sharp handle on the shipping within Manitoba. Mm -hmm. um, we could probably use some contacts I have uh, in the school division to get it sent centrally and then distributed through division mail. So those costs yeah. would all come down, which would mean that we could, you know, have a, a certain number, a certain percentage of the print run, which we essentially are budgeting to give away if we can cover all those other expenses through the Kickstarter. So that would be a tier unlock. Like if we need $15,000 to print the book, 
but at twenty thousand dollars, then we can set aside. Yeah, we'll send however many hundreds of books out to rural Manitoba, and maybe maybe the way to 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 let people be part of the chain, be part of that um, network, is we could set the tiers to be like we'll send this many free books to Manitoba, this many free books to Canada, this many free books. You know, like you could rank it up you know we can't afford to just send free books places but if we divide that by you know a thousand a thousand backers everyone pitching in a dollar means that we could send a good number of free copies out to the world right? i love that idea yeah so yeah well i think that that's a great note to end on a good positive note despite the uh, wreckage of the world this has been super pulp science uh and this is gregory kamichuk reminding you to join the fight and make comments